All right. Good morning, beloved. Great to be back up here after a couple of weeks off. I want to thank uh, Pastor Rick for covering those few weeks. Uh, I was really some incredibly blessed to uh, spend some extra time, of course, with uh, my own family. I was able to uh, gather and break some bread with some of you. Um, it was really just a wonderful time. I'm renewed and ready to get back into God's Word today. So if you join me and open your Bibles, we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. And... Uh, this morning we're going to be looking through verses 12 through 27. Our uh, passage uh, this morning continues the narrative of the greatest evil ever perpetrated in human history as the only perfect man ever to live was persecuted, hunted, uh, betrayed. And our verses here this morning, our Lord is arrested. Yet, despite the uh, chaos and treachery, God's plan was enacted. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ stood undefiled, uh, uncorrupted, undissuaded, and undefeated. When the faithful flee, the bold betray, Jesus will remain and unlike any other fallen man, he will never fail us. So we left off last time with Jesus, you'll remember, protecting his own, his disciples, the eleven, as Judas had led a cohort of Roman soldiers, as well as officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. So we'll uh, pick that story Back up then in verse uh, 12. And this is the reading of God's infallible and living word. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, for it was cold and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple when all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard why, what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? 
So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? Peter denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Uh, regardless of uh, who we are, uh, wherever it is that we have come from, whatever it is that we might have gone through in our life, we must all take a stand. We must all take a stand, and we are either for Christ or we are against Christ. At the time of our death, or if the, if the Lord so returns, we will all be in one of those two camps. There's no neutrality in the Bible. There's no such thing as a kind of Christian. There's no such thing as riding the fence. When we will all stand before God, you are either for Christ or you will be against him. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus recorded in Matthew 10, verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have come to divide. You're either with me or you are against me. Now, before we go through our verses today, do you just want to uh, quickly go over the first 11 verses from this chapter to set the contest, uh, context since it's been a couple weeks? Um, you'll recall it was in verses 1 through 4 we saw the divine resolve of the Lord Jesus Christ as Jesus went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered. We see in the other gospel accounts this was a place that the Lord frequently often and, and went to pray. And so he goes there, not to a place to hide. This was a familiar place. But because he knew that that is where Judas would come to look for him. In verse 2, we see these words. Now Judas, also who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. In verse 3, Judas and having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Verse 4, we see Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. He went forward. That is Christ's divine resolve. He was not only sovereign over all things, but he was resolute. Luke 9 tells us that Jesus set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. Jesus came to die. He said back in John 12, verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus knew that he was marching ever so slowly towards the cross. And so he was in total control of all this. And John wants us to know Jesus is no victim. Do not think of the Lord Jesus Christ as a victim. He came to die. That was his passion. That was his heart. 
even in his betrayal, the Lord Jesus is in total control. He knows everything that was going to happen, and yet verse 1 and verse 4 say he went forth. In verses 5 through 6, we saw his divine power at work. As Jesus responded with the famous words from Exodus 3 in the burning bush, uh, Ego Amy, I am. He speaks the very name of God, I am. And verse 6, they drew back and the soldiers fell to the ground. What a, what a sight this must have been. And then verse 10, you remember Peter takes out his sword and he swings wildly and cuts off Malchus's ear, a servant of the high priest. Luke later records in Luke 21, 51, that the Lord simply touched his ear and it was immediately healed. His final miracle before the cross, he created an ear out of nothing. Verse 11, Jesus rebuked Peter saying, the cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? As he speaks here to his substitutionary atonement. So that was the first section of chapter 18, the betrayal. Now we move into the second section as we now begin the Lord's trial. We begin the Lord's trial. And in this text, though these verses are very straightforward and really don't need much explaining, uh, these verses are unique in the sense that John interplays uh, two different scenes here. It's almost like the cameraman pans back and forth between two different scenes because they're happening at the same time. On one hand, you have the trial of Jesus happening, and then on the other hand, you have Peter's denial going on. And so John jumps back and forth between the two scenes, first the trial of Jesus, then to Peter's denial. And really, these two um, scenes bring into sharp focus um, for us opposite truths that are foundational um, to all Christian doctrine, the glory of Christ and the fallenness of man. The glory of Christ and the sinful fallenness of man. These truths are evident and John contrasts them between Christ's faithfulness and Peter's faithlessness. From Christ's uh, sacrificial love to Peter's self-preserving lies. And so John shows us these two contrasts as we will back and forth once again between these two stories one is the true light of Christ, and the second reveals the darkness. I've broken this up into four separate parts. You'll see in the back of your bulletin. Let's begin with number one, as Jesus is arrested. This is just incredible con to consider. Jesus is arrested. Verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Um, now we know from verses 2 and 3 that Judas is there. He is with them. It says in verse 2, Judas, who was betraying him, received the Roman soldiers and officers from the chief priests and, and Pharisees. So mark it, uh, Judas has made his decision. He's decided on, on which line of the party to stand with. And he's standing on the side of the arresting party. And I don't want to belabor the point. We've talked about Judas quite a bit. But Judas's life certainly stands as a warning. This is someone who hung around Jesus just long enough to know something about him, to create a God in his own image. He had an idea of who the Christ was supposed to be. Well, he hung around just long enough to know something about him, yet not close enough to be changed by him. 
Judas is a warning just how deceitful the heart is. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? One translation says beyond cure. I think if you tell someone uh, they're desperately sick, they think that they can go to Sweden and maybe go get some kind of a special cure. The better translation in the Hebrew for this is beyond cure. We need a whole brand new heart. We need a divine operation. Now, in verse 12, John again reminds us of the scene. And just try to imagine late into the night, early in the morning, um, Jesus is surrounded by a Roman cohort, 600 to 1,000 soldiers. And now it says that they have their commander even with them. These men are armed to the teeth. You also have maybe a couple hundred Jewish officials, it says as well. These were temple guardsmen of the chief priests and of the Pharisees. And this is clearly at the behest of Judas because Mark 14, verse 44, tells us, Now he, Judas, who was betraying him, had given him a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him under guard. And so Judas wasn't taking any chances with Jesus escaping. They wanted to seize him. And with the religious leaders having plotted this for years, these two evils came together. They have finally have the Lord Jesus Christ right where they want him, surrounded by a small army. Now just think about what's going on here for a second. I'm, I'm studying this, thinking about this. I, when I was a kid, I had those little plastic uh, army soldiers. You remember those little plastic ones you could set up all around? Imagine setting up 600 of these, these soldiers around the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's almost laughable when you think about it that any number of troops is going to somehow stop the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say to Peter? Do you think I cannot call my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I've seen the damage that just one angel has done in the Bible, never mind 12 legions of angels. I mean, really, you're talking about the one who has created everything. All things have been created through him and for him. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only created it, he sustains it. He is the power behind it all. Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. We saw earlier all Jesus had to do was speak and all of the men fell to the ground. And yet here they are surrounding Jesus. It really is a uh, picture of Psalm 2. I, I read this uh, about a month ago to the church. Psalm 2 says, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And, you know, men do the same thing today. They think they're captain of their own souls, don't we? We want to do whatever we want to do and not have to be obedient to, to a God. And they think they can just kind of go on and do as they please. But here in our verses, just like in Psalm 2, the arresting party was made up of both Jew and Gentile. Don't miss that. Both Roman soldiers and Jewish were here. And I think John wants to point this out that it is the nations 
who have come together against the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to his own creation, and his own creation received him not. Did you see how uh, verse 12 ends? So the Roman cohort and the commander and officer of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. No matter how many times I read this, it's shocking. In my old life, I, I knew that on any given day could have been my last. My addiction had gotten so dark, uh, I was either going to end up dead or I was going to end up arrested on any given day. Typically, if you get arrested, you've done something to break the law. And um, as I meditated upon this, I just began to step back and think about who is it that we're talking about here? We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, who is more compassionate than the Lord? He not only healed lepers, he touched them and spent time with them. He was more powerful. We just saw him knock over hundreds of Roman soldiers by the power of his word. He was more loving than Christ. While he was pinned, nailed to the cross and dying, and not just the physical death, but the wrath of the Father upon him for the sins of his people, they're being poured out upon him. What is he thinking of? The thief on the cross and his mother. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to John, behold your mother. Take care of her. Who was more humble? The God of the universe humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Who had more wisdom? When the temple's guards were asked why they hadn't arrested Jesus back in chapter 7 and 8, they said, never had a man spoken this way before. Who was more caring than the Lord Jesus? He, he never walked anybody who had a need. He healed the sick. He healed and restored the lame. He healed the blind. He casted out demons. Who was more perfect? He had never sinned. Indeed, Oren thought. He was tempted in the desert more than we could ever bear, and yet he remained sinless. Even the thief on the cross said, we are being punished justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. Six separate trials, and none of them produced a single shred of true evidence against the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he humbled himself in obedience and allows himself to be arrested and bound and then willingly walks to the cross to atone for the sins of his people. Let the record indicate, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this man who is being arrested is none other than the sinless son of God, and he is being arrested by mankind like a common criminal. And notice, they didn't just arrest him. Verse 12 says, they bound him. And here is a typology from the Old Testament, uh, Genesis chapter 22, as Abraham and Isaac are, are walking up uh, Mount Moriah. And as they are going, there's that incredible scene where Isaac asks his, his father, where is the sacrifice, Father? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says in faith, God himself will provide the lamb, son. God will provide the lamb. 
And as he bound Isaac and laid him out across the altar and took out his knife, he's just about ready to plunge it into his only true, unique son, the promised one. What happens? The angel of the Lord calls down and says, Stop it! Abraham! Abraham! And he says, Here I am, Lord! And just then Abraham raises his eyes, and what does he see? Behind him is a ram caught in the thicket. And the lamb becomes the substitute for Isaac, just as the Lord had planned. Little did Abraham know that all this would point ahead to a picture, to a type, and that God himself will once again provide the one true pure lamb of God, as John the Baptist just said, we read, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it's all here. John Calvin says of this verse, quote, Let us remember that the body of the Son of God was bound, that our souls might be loosed from the cords of sin and of Satan. End quote. The prophet um, Isaiah writes this in perhaps the most gospel centered passage in all of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 4 through 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was laid upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. It's the great exchange. His righteousness and he takes upon our wretchedness. And so we see here that Jesus Christ is arrested and bound. As we continue in the text, we're into these key players of this mock trial. Verse 12, they arrested Jesus and bound him. Verse 13, and led him to Annas, at, at Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Um, so notice, they led him to Annas first. Um, this preliminary hearing is only recorded here in John's Gospel. You won't find it anywhere else. And it marks the first of three phases of the Jewish hearings that the Lord Jesus Christ will be brought through. And when you look and harmonize all the Gospel accounts, you discover Jesus is brought through essentially six trials or six different phases of trials and it basically is three religious trials by the Jews and then three civil by the Romans. The three Jewish phases of the trial was first by Annas, the second is by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and then third phase was in the morning as all the authorities then gathered together and they confirmed the decision that was made from the night before. So um, Mark 15 uh, verse 1 says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consolation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So that was the very last one. They all confirmed. They were all there. And now they sent him to Rome to deal with. So our verse, verse 13, is the first of the series of these mock trials by the Jews. Um, Annas was notorious. We don't hear much about Annas. Um, there's a lot of information on him. Um, but uh, he's not usually mentioned. Um, 
And although he, he's not actually technically holding the office of high priest here at the time, he was still one of the most powerful figures in the Jewish hierarchy, if not the highest. Um, he had been high priest from 6 AD to 15. He was removed as Pilate's predecessor, um, as governor removed him, Validus Gratis, I think his name was. Um, but according to Numbers 35, once you were a high priest, you were there for life. So Annas would have still been seen, at least by the people, the Jewish people, as the high priest. But the Romans, <laughs> they didn't like that idea because that gave way too much developing power to a man. And so the Romans were always moving their pawn pieces in and out, in and out, in the priestly position to try to avoid that. But what's interesting, after Annas' removal from office, Rome didn't look too far for his replacement. Um, five of Annas' sons and one of his grandsons served as the next high priest. And when the Romans had run out of sons and grandsons, they appointed a man named Caiaphas, who, as verse 13 tells us, is Annas' son-in-law. And so Annas becomes sort of the Wizard of Oz who's controlling everything from behind the curtain. And so as you begin to put all these pieces together, you can't help but notice that the temple has essentially turned into a corrupt family-owned business. And Jesus threatens all of this. You recall it was earlier in the week that for the second time in three years, Jesus cleanses the entire temple by himself, overturning tables of the money changers, driving out all those who bought and sold within the temple. He called it a den of thieves. And Jesus was right. If you were to go to the temple during any of the uh, festivals to offer your sacrifice, uh, your sacrifice would first have to be inspected by one of the priestly inspectors. And it would be very unlikely that your, your animal would pass the inspection. It wouldn't be quite good enough particularly during the Passover where Josephus said there was over a quarter million lambs sacrificed. And so you would then have to buy an animal from the temple and, and behold, the temple had them. They had plenty for sale at an inflated price, of course, and all those profits went into Annas and the priestly family's pockets. Well, that's not all. There was also, of course, the temple tax, uh, tax that you had to pay to help keep the temple. And if you're a pilgrim who had come for the Passover, say, from the Mediterranean area, and if you had a different kind of coinage, guess what? You had to exchange it. But no worries. Annas was sure to have the money changers right there for another small fee. In fact, uh, so infamous was Annas's greed, this whole temple operation he had, is known as the bazaars of Annas. <laughs> and so this was the apostate religious system that our Lord came in and confronted head on. And the fear that Annas and the other religious people had was that the people were starting to go after this man, Jesus. And if that happened, they feared that there would be a, a total revolt of the people. They feared the people would riot revolution would start. If that happened, the Romans would come in and squash over the revolt and take away all of their place and power. This is what they feared. And we know this because this is what Caiaphas told us earlier in John's Gospel. Turn to John chapter 11, turn back just a couple pages, and you'll notice 
this story because it comes right after the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And we looked at this a couple months ago now. In chapter 11, verse 45, right after the raising of Lazarus, it says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to Mary and saw what he had done and what he had, he had done, they had just witnessed Jesus call a man by name who had been dead for four days. <laughs> right? And Lazarus got up and walked out of the tomb, and he was more alive than he ever had been before. So after many people saw what he had done, they believed in him. This is really what, what set the scales off, this, this incredible miracle. Verse 46, but someone went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come, here it comes, and take away both our place and our nation. There it is. This is what they were worried about. They, they feared they were going to lose their place. That's their position of power in our nation. That's the control over the people and where they get their money. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you. He's saying, you guys just don't know anything. This is a very simple problem to fix. That one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. All we have to do is kill one man. And we don't have to worry about Rome. And this whole problem goes away. Very easy to fix, guys. And I promise you he's not talking about the atonement here. <laughs> he had no idea what he's saying. In fact, it says in verse 51, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So chapter 11's prophecy is now being fulfilled in chapter 18. For as John writes in verse 14, Now Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. So we have a complete abandonment of duty of the office of the chief priests, the priestly office. These so-called high priests were so far off the reservation that they are actually attempting to condemn and ultimately will have the hand that crucifies the great high priest, the one that all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. They are so corrupt that the priesthood of God's holy temple stands here against the Christ. How hard must their hearts be? The uh, author to the Hebrews spends a great deal of time in chapter 7 through 10 talking about the great high priest. But I absolutely love what he has to say in Hebrews 7, 26 through 28. He writes, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest, 
holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This takes us to uh, number two in Peter's first denial. Peter's first denial. Now, this is where John's narrative just suddenly shifts from Jesus' trial to a different kind of trial, trial Peter is about to enter into. And here we see the ignored precautions of Peter. Uh, bear in mind, Jesus had already warned Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And it was just an hour ago during the Last Supper that Jesus foretells Peter that he would in fact deny him, and, and therefore he warned Peter, uh, you must watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But like so many times in our own lives, well, Peter didn't exactly take the word of the Lord seriously. And this will lead to much of his undoing. How many times have you let the word of the Lord go in one ear and go right out the other? And you continue right down that same old road that leads you to misery? Well, this is what's going to happen to Peter. He had already heard these things and warnings from the Lord. But he really saw no need to apply it to his own life. After all, this was Peter. He's confident in himself. But unfortunately, that pride left him vulnerable to his own flesh and the ingenious temptations that Satan had waiting for him. Verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. So we won't spend time in this, this uh, footnote. Um, I'll just say here is a reference to probably the Apostle John. Uh, we don't know for sure. It could be any disciple. He's not named here. Is it Joseph of Arimathea? Is it Nicodemus? Doubtful. John's uh, later identified in chapter 20 in verse 2 as the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Remember, John never uses his own name. Um, we know that's John in chapter 20 from the other gospel accounts. Probably, John, we don't know. In any event, way too much ink has been spilled on speculation. John, John goes on to say, now that disciple was known to the high priest. That's kind of interesting, though, isn't that? Whoever this disciple is was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Um, evidently, John, or whoever this disciple is, is known by Caiaphas, and he goes into the priestly den with Jesus. Verse 16, but Peter was standing at the door outside so the other disciple who was known as so so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in now notice what happens in verse 17 then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter you are not also one of his man's disciples are you he says i am not this is a doorkeeper. <laughs> She's a slave girl. <laughs> what happened to uh, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away, Peter? Did, did
Did the question catch him off guard? The very one who said, I will lay down my life for you, Lord. But that's how temptation comes, doesn't it? When we're not planning it, it catches us off guard. It's a sudden surprise, and we're in a weak moment. Matthew 26 records it this way. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. And Galilean was a, a word of derision, really. Um, it's kind of like a snobbish ridicule used by Judeans, especially from Jerusalem, as they like to mock those hicks up there in Galilee, up there in the sticks there. At any rate, it catches Peter off guard. Matthew adds that Peter responded to the girl saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Luke 22 says Peter denied him saying, Woman, I do not know him. Mark 14 verse 66 says as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. Now we know from Matthew 26, 56, that as soon as the Lord was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, that all the disciples deserted them and fled. All, all of them. Peter and John apparently returned. They were probably so overwhelmed with guilt and shame that they quickly came back. Peter's following Jesus, but he's following him at a distance. Following him at a distance. Verse 18, now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And this is also remind, letting us know that this mock trial is happening in the middle of the night, breaking all Jewish rules themselves anyways. But this is really done in secret, underground. They don't want the general public knowing. So putting the story in here lets us know, yeah, this is overnight. So around Easter time, it's not going to be cold enough during the day. At nighttime, it gets cold. So they're warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. So John's gospel is kind of full of irony, really, here as he's one minute before standing with Jesus, and now he's standing with the enemies of Christ. Right? Once again, we see the ingenious way Satan just deceives. Think about it. Whenever the enemy sees a sheep without a shepherd wandering alone, he quickly will provide a place of warm comfort and safety. Come on in, a sense of belonging, family, community. Don't worry, it's in the company of those who hate Christ. Peter's world is unraveling. He's confused. He's afraid. He's being ruled by his failing flesh. And his whole arrogant bravado, well, it really ain't helping him right now, is it? He's learning the hard way of what Jesus said earlier. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, what a hard lesson that is to learn for us. But this is precisely the state of helplessness and, and of shame that the Lord knew would come upon Peter. This was the fiery trial that he would use to refine the shield of Peter's faith. And though Peter failed to stay awake and pray lest he be tempted, the Lord never fails. And he said, Peter, I have prayed for you. 
You might have fallen asleep at the prayer meeting, Peter. But the good Lord prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, Peter, you'll strengthen your brothers. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it, on the day of Pentecost? Well, this takes us to number three. As the scene now shifts back to Jesus and Annas, verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now, even though Caiaphas is actually the high priest of the day, of the time right now, Annas here is kind of like a, a former uh, president of the United States. We would still call him Mr. President, President Trump. He's not still the president. Is, Don, is he? That was a good one, huh? Annas is still referred to here as a high priest. He's not technically the high priest, but he's still referred to as the high priest. And Annas begins to question Jesus in order to dig up some dirt upon the good Lord. He's not actually interested in getting to the truth. No, every one of these questions is a gotcha question. Every one of these questions is an attempt to catch Jesus and hoping that he'll self-incriminate himself. The whole thing from start to finish is a sham. This is uh, a mock trial. They, they decided years ago to kill the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've been plotting this ever since. And so Annas is looking for something that he can bend and to use against the Lord. Maybe Jesus will trip up and say something that can be held against him so he can be on a fast lane to the Romans. And so he questions him about two things. We see this at the end of verse 19 about his disciples and about his teaching. Essentially, Annas wants to know uh, what kind of force has Jesus gathered? What, what kind of an army do you got? And number two, what kind of instructions has Jesus given to them? Annas can only think of worldly expectations of what, what this Jesus guy might be up to and might be seeking. So he wants to know, do you, do you have an organized army? How many followers do you have? Where are they? What are they doing? What, what have you instructed them? Is there a chain of command? Uh, are they going to move and when? And before Annas can even get his question probably out of his mouth, the Lord returns, serve. Jesus speaks nothing but the truth. There's no hesitation. He doesn't need to think about it. Jesus simply opened his mouth and nothing but truth comes out, the absolute truth. So in verses 20 through 21, Jesus answers and he says, I have spoken openly to the world. Stop there just for a moment. This word openly many times translated as, as boldly, but the idea of the word is to, to let it all come out. It means uh, you hold nothing back. You, you, you put it all out there. As a preacher, uh, Jesus kept nothing in his hip pockets. He preached 24-7, openly, boldly, in the truth, full disclosure. So he says, I've spoken openly to the world. And what Jesus is saying is, is, I have no hidden agenda. I am not leading a secret cult. I'm not starting a, a mystery religion. I have always spoken openly to the whole world. Whoever wants to hear it has heard it. And that's an example, really, for you and me as well. We need to speak openly to the world as God provides us these opportunities as the doors become open. We should be praying for these. 
verse 20, Jesus continues, I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Jesus was a teacher. He taught every day, all day. Sunrise, sunset, city to city, village to village, house to house. You couldn't stop this man from preaching and from teaching. And he says here, he taught in two places. First, Jesus says, I always taught in the synagogues. This was simply a place where 10 or more Jewish families would come together and worship and for the, the reading of God's word. But I think here he's saying synagogue as he's referring to his ministry probably more up in the northern Galilee's where he would walk into the synagogues. That's his northern ministry. Secondly, he says, and I taught in the temple. This is down in the southern part of Israel. He's referring to Jerusalem. When I was down here, I spoke right in the temple. I was in all the synagogues. And when I came down here, I was right in the temple preaching day after day. And the temple is the headquarters for apostate Judaism. This is where the priests and the Pharisees were located. This is the re religious establishment, if you will. And notice he adds where all the Jews come together. Jesus taught and, and preached to vast numbers of people, especially during this, uh, these festivals. Massive crowds that he spoke to. So whether in the small Jewish synagogue, up there in Galilee, wherever, or whether he's at the massive temple down in Jerusalem, the megachurch, he's saying, I've spoke nothing in secret. I don't have two messages. I don't have one message for up north for those people. And when I come down here, a different message. I've spoken nothing in secret. I, I, I've, I've laid it all out. And just let me remind you that the teaching of Jesus was emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit who came upon him in the river Jordan. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and he gave it to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them today, this scripture, Isaiah 61, has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was a truth teacher. You got nothing but the truth out of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying, Annas, everything that I've ever said has been out there in the open. I have spoken nothing in secrets. That leads us to verse 21 as Jesus really unmasks Annas' hypocrisy. Jesus asks, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Jesus challenges Annas to essentially Present your case, Annas. Lay your cards out on the table. Why are you asking me? You heard me all week at the temple preaching. You know my teaching. If you have witnesses against me, go talk to them. Examine them and bring the evidence, Annas. Go question them. Verse 22. When... He, Jesus, had said this. One of the officers standing by struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? This wasn't just a slap. This was a full force of an officer's fist or possibly even using a 
a weapon directed right at his face. This, this is a cheap shot. I remind you, Jesus' hands are bound. He is in a uh, supposed setting here of justice and of truth, and he is punched squarely in the face. And this author says, is that the way you answer the high priest? Who do you think you're talking to? Well, let me tell you what the truth is. Jesus was the real high priest who would offer him up himself up as a sacrifice for our sins and who would intercede for us on Calvary's cross by the shedding of his blood for us and is now at the right hand of God the Father. Still making intercession on our behalf, Jesus responds in verse 23. I want you to notice how under control Jesus remains. There is a divine calmness to him, yet a righteous intensity in his response. Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, meaning if, if, if I have falsified the truth, testify of the wrong. In other words, then provide the evidence and, and bring forward your witness. But if rightly, Jesus asks, says, why do you strike me? Well, the answer is because men love the darkness rather than the light and their deeds are evil. The answer is, is because they are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. The answer is because these men are still dead in their sins. The answer is because they are under the dominion and the sway of the evil one. There is no reason to strike him. He is the sinless, perfect son of God. And he, and he, and he proves it by modeling for us here what Peter will write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. He writes, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2, verse 23. Verse 23 closes this section saying, so Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So again, this is how you know it's Annas. Annas now sends Jesus down the road to Caiaphas, the high priest. They can't release him. They want him dead. So Annas sends him bound to Caiaphas. We close real quickly with this last section are foreseen as Peter's last two denials. Denials number two and three in John's Gospel. While Jesus is being questioned by Annas, verse 25, now Simon Peter still standing and warning himself. This is where we left them in verse 18, remember? Look down there at the end of verse 18. Peter was also with them standing warming himself. Meanwhile, verse 25, he's still standing there warming himself. He hasn't moved. He doesn't know what to do. He can't leave, and yet he doesn't want to be exposed. And so it happens again. Verse 25, so they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, and he said, I am not. Verse 26, one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off. This is a relative then of Malchus said to him, did I not see you in the garden with him? I recognize you. I was there. Peter 
then denied it again. This is the third one. And immediately a rooster crowed. In the black darkness of night, instead of redeeming himself, Peter is further ensnared and entangled as he continues denying knowing the Lord. We'll close with this. Luke chapter 22, verse 60. Luke brings these two dramas together, these two stories. And in verse 60, Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. This was to the question earlier. Certainly this man was with him. He's a Galilean. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 60, immediately while he, Peter, was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then look at this powerful moment in verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The difference between Peter and Judas is Judas went out and hanged himself. No remorse that turned to repentance, just remorse that turned into suicide. With Peter, it was remorse that turned to repentance, and he wept bitterly. What's the difference, really, between Judas and Peter? Judas hated Jesus Christ. Peter loved him. And the Lord restored Peter, did he not? Did he restore Judas? At the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus asked, Do you love me? And he will ask him three times for the three times that Peter denied the Lord. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? He said, Yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. And the Lord graciously restored him to ministry. And he preached that great sermon on the day of Pentecost. The wonderful reality of this passage is, is here is a disciple woefully sinning, denying Christ. We opened this lesson today, reading the scriptures. The Lord said, if you deny me in front of people, I'll deny you in front of my father. There's always room with the Lord for restoration and forgiveness. And this sin on its own would have been enough to say that Peter is nothing more than a Judas. Instead, he becomes the great gospel preacher on the day of Pentecost and through the first half book of Acts and he lived to, I don't know, in the 60s, A.D. This is the people for whom Christ died for. Sinners. Sinners. Paul says that I'm the most of them. Peter, denying the Lord. Some of the greatest men who followed Christ because of Christ. But here, while Christ is being slapped and bit, uh, hit, hit and backhanded and smacked around, his closest <coughs> follower was denying him outside. And yet he goes to the cross joyfully in order to save him. That's our Savior. 
That is our God. The Lord's invitation is always open. He says, come, come to me. Come, the invitation, all you who are weary and heavy with laden, and I will give you rest. Seek his face and you will find him. If you need prayers this morning, we'd be happy to meet with you down here front or after the service and pray with you. Can you please stand with us? We'll sing uh, one more song, King of Kings. <laughs>